Okay, I'm going to just share in, uh, very briefly this morning, and I'm going to share from Matthew 16. Matthew, the 16th chapter. Now look at verse 13, and we'll go to verse 19. Verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, he asked those that were his pupils, those that he had been teaching as their rabbi, as their teacher, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's what he said. He asked them who people, other people said who he was. He, he said, as the Son of Man. Now, when he says the Son of Man here in Matthew 16 and verse 13, Son of Man is who Jesus Christ is, who he became, the Son of Man as the head of a whole new race of people. He, as the Son of God, in, in virtue of his deity, that's who he is. He's the Son of God, always is, always was, eternal. He is the Son of God. But then when Jesus put on humanity in John 1, in verse 14, he became, and through what he was accomplishing and what he did in his person, in the work that he accomplished, he became and he is the Son of Man. So Jesus said, he asked them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man? So we know that when he says here, the Son of Man, it's never apart from who he is as the Son of God. We've said this before, that when God became God the Son, the Son of God became a man in John 1 and verse 14. He became a man forever. We have a forever identification with God who put on humanity. What a, what a phenomenal thing to think about, that he knows everything about us through having had humanity and gone through everything. And he did it for each of us individually. So when it says son of man, he is never the son of man apart from being the son of God. And he did become the son of man and put on humanity in time. But in the eternal mind of God, he was always the lamb in Revelations 13.8. So he was always the lamb of God. And that would always speak of him, the son of, of God, putting on humanity. So the Lamb would always speak of his humanity. Again, so when we read that, he's asking them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, can they describe who I am as the Son of Man if they don't know who I am as the Son of God? And can they be separated? And we've taught before, God has taught all of us, that... When God, the Son, became a man, he became a man forever, and he also did away with all distance between God and man. It's Christ who would do away with any distance. Verse 14, And they said, in response to his question about who do men say that I am, some say that you are John the Baptist. Now, when he says, here, we see that in Matthew 16, verse 14, when they said, some say you are uh, John the Baptist. Now look what John, through the Holy Spirit, and we know the Holy Spirit is speaking this uh, to John. We look in John the first chapter. So how do I understand, how am I to understand when they said, some say that you are John the Baptist? Did John the Baptist himself say that he was the Son of God or that he was the light which the Son of Man is as he came? John, the first chapter, verse 6. You can read those first five verses, which are phenomenal, but we won't because of time. John, chapter 1, verse 6, in answering what we're reading here in Matthew, the 16th chapter. There was a man in John 1, verse 6, sent from God, whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that's the Son of Man, Christ, that all through him, through Christ, might believe through the light. He was not that light. See that? He was not the light. Who was the light? 
in John 8, 12. Jesus Christ is the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 9 of, 1 John, uh, of John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, That was the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. So who is the light? The light is who Jesus Christ is as the Son of Man. Okay? He's the Son of Man. So, when they said to him, some say, and John, now we're back into Matthew 16 and verse 14, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some said that, but yet John the Baptist, who was the forerunner and the messenger of Jesus, did he even say he was that? No, it makes it clear. He never said that. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, says Elijah. Elijah's here. It's Elijah. And others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. (coughs) Excuse me. In verse 15, Then he, Christ, said unto the disciples, now he's going to ask them, but who do you say that I am? Now, that? He asked them two questions. Who do men say to you who I am? Now, who do you say I am? Who do you listen to? Who's going to tell you who I am? Others? Or me through my word? Who do you say that I am? Some say, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. He's speaking of his deity, but manifested through the word. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one that's, that's going to come, the Messiah. You are him, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah is son of John, Simon, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, blessed, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you. That wasn't, flesh and blood didn't reveal this. You didn't learn this of yourself and no man in the natural or the flesh and blood of the natural ever told you that. But my Father, but is separated from the flesh and blood. But my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto you, and this is what we want to get to this morning. And I say unto you, that you are Peter. And when he's saying this, when we saying this, we have to realize this. That when Jesus is speaking this, he's speaking this to Peter. But I, God wants us to see this this morning. That he is speaking this to us individually. He's speaking that to us this morning. And this is what he's saying. And I say unto you that you are Peter. And when he says that, remember, this is the new name that he gave Peter. And we all have. We have an old name, the old nature, the old flesh in 2 Corinthians 5.16. But we have a new nature now. We have that beautiful new nature that's brought out in 2 Peter 1, verse 4. And we have a new nature, and that nature is based upon this new name that we have. We all have a new name now. And that's who he calls us after. That's how God deals with each of us after. He deals with us after the new name, which is based upon that new nature that we have. Even the correction. Even when he corrects us and disciplines us lovingly. We spoke about it. We spoke about it this morning. Uh, this morning we, 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 we talked about it. God is not an angry God. He's a God of wrath. Wrath has to do with the justice of God's love and the love of his justice, which hasn't been met. There can only be wrath. But having once been met by Jesus Christ, who dealt with it all, there is no wrath. There isn't any. So God deals with us in loving chastisement, in teaching and preaching of the word, based upon this new nature that we have. And we have a new nature. We have a brand new name. You have a brand new baby in the family. You're going to give it a name. You have a new name. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. And we'll see this this morning. 
And I say unto you in Matthew 16 and 18 that you are Peter. Each of us can put our name there. Our new name. This is, this is for every one of us. I am saying unto you, I am saying unto you, Gene. I, God is saying, I am saying unto you, Gene. To you, Gabriel. To you, Cynthia. To you, Jadiel. To you, Barbara. To you, Diane, to you, Ed, and to ever here who's listening, I say unto you that you are this name. And I named you, and I gave you a new name, because you're not your own anymore, you're mine. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Furthermore, I've sealed you. Christ my Son won you, because I gave him to you. And now I sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And the seal there of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 and verse 13 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22 and 2 Corinthians 5, 5. The seal is the proof of ownership. You're mine. And I'm saying unto you individually that you are so-and-so, whatever your name is, and upon this rock, Christ himself, this foundation, I will build my church. I will do it. And the gates of hell, all their power, will not prevail against you. Isn't that awesome? Not one thing can prevail against you. You will see that based upon Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. All the way to the 39th verse of that chapter of Romans 8. Then he said in verse 19, And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed on, on the earth. This is speaking of preaching and teaching of the word. And we'll get into that at a different time. But did you hear that? And God wants us to hear that this morning. That you who are you, you whoever you are, in your new name and in your new person, who you are, because you're mine, and because everything that my son did for you as an individual, and by the way, he had you in mind, because he wasn't just, he wasn't just human, although perfectly human. He was God. And everything he did, he did for you individual, individually. And then you were born new, with a new nature. Instantly, the moment you received Christ, you were born and given a new nature and a new name. That new name is brought out in Revelations 2 and verse 17. But you can see all through the synoptics how he, he renamed all those that were his. He gave him a brand new name based upon a nature that Christ would give him. And then Christ would name them. Just like he gave the first Adam to name all his, the different creations as the head of that race, but then fallen. Here we are, Christ is our head in Colossians 1.18, Colossians 2.19, and he gives us this new name. <clears throat> when we think about the scriptures in all of humanity, we can see in every phase of human government and human time on earth, God was loving. He was loving. He loves all the same, all different people groups. They don't all have the same place. All the Old Covenant saints are a heavenly people, just like we are. They're heavenly. But are they a church people? Are they the very body of Christ? Are they his bride, are all? And no, that's us. And because of that, and this is what Jesus is teaching here, he, did, he doesn't love any more or any less, but how intimate are how intimate are we in terms of being his bride? Many times we've, we've taught it this way. David, you know, as we can see, and we can see this, and we see it in Second in, in Samuel, in different, in different chapters we see this, that David had, had mighty men, and they would do anything for him. They would give their very lives, even to give him a cup of cold water if he was thirsty in the midst of battle. And they were his deep friends, they had a very intimate, close relationship. But no one could have an intimate as close as a husband and a wife. You can have friends, and even in this body, we have friends. And God wants to establish oneness and an intimacy uh, with each other. He wants to establish these things. 
establish them in, in a very beautiful way and, and bring these friendships to be in such a place of closeness that nothing could interfere with it, that not one single thing. And we could have this depth of, of uh, friendship. And we could even function in the house. But when the husband and the wife go into the bedroom, who's the only ones that go in there in that intimate relationship? That's what we have in Christ. Now, because of that, because we have this intimate relationship as the church, here we are when we see the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is very individual and very precise about what we have in Christ. It's not only a, a, a heavenly people, but his church, his bride, his body. This is brought out clearly in the scriptures. Because we have the height of that privilege, the higher we go, the higher we go in terms of the privileges we have, the more the conflict and the confrontation that's going to come against us. So now you see that in Ephesians, the sixth chapter. We're born into a conflict. Of course, unsaved or saved, not born again or born again. We're all born into a conflict. But the conflict for those that are in Christ in the heavenly places is going to be the increase because of the privilege is the conflict and the confrontation that's going to come against it. But the good news is God for us in Romans 8.31. Who against us? Does it even matter? If God is for us, then who can be against us? God ever lost a certain thing? Has he ever lost one, one particular thing? He's never lost a single thing. Does God always have his way? Well, if he didn't, would he still be the sovereign God? And of course not. Of course not. But here's what God wants to bring out this morning. And this is what's going to happen. And I'm going to tell you, this happens with us individually. It happens in the, in the, the body of Christ on the earth. But in particular, listen, and in precisely, it comes against a particular local assembly like us right here as a local assembly. Now, for, because of COVID and because of certain health and age and all that, we can't all gather like we would like to in person. So when we can do this as much as we can in person through technology and through these phones. But the reality is, is that the enemy cannot stand that fact. And he's going to do everything he can because in Matthew 16, 18, because God loves us so deeply and individually. The enemy in a local assembly, he's going to do everything he can to divide it. And you wouldn't believe, and you don't know, unless you have precise teaching, you do not know the thousand and one ways he will get to cause that division, even in an ignorant sense, to, to cause that separation. He will do everything he can with thoughts and imaginations to project against you as an individual and then to project those things against someone else in that local assembly that he's called you to. He's going to do everything he can. The closer and more intimate the relationship is with God and the individual and the local assembly, the greater the conflict is going to be. Why? Because whatever is nearest and dearest to God's heart. Whatever is that present operation of God through those that are his is always what, it, what Satan is against and sets himself with all his might and subtlety to come against it. That starts individually when you're alone. He'll do everything he can to come against you as an individual. And if he's not busy doing that, he'll do everything he can to use thoughts and things for you to come against someone against that and that local assembly because he wants to break it up. Because you know all through the synoptics, Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. He's constantly trying to cause division, separation, distance between God and the individual and the individual with the local assembly. I guarantee you this. And he will give you a thousand and one excuses to accomplish that. Why? Because of God's precise order. Why does he do this? Why does Satan come against? Because you and I, 
are bound up and close with Christ because of what it cost him. What cost him the most, what cost God the most, what cost Christ the most is the thing that he's going to go after the most. That's you and I individually. He's going to do every single thing he can. Therefore, Satan seeks to thwart and to mar the work of God in a local assembly. It starts with the individual and it starts with the whole. That's why the Bible teaches that fellowship in a local assembly, you know that your relationship is right with God when it's right with God in the local assembly where he's called you. It's very precise in the scriptures. If I'm rightly related to God, I'll be rightly related to where he's called me. It's just just the way it works. We can see that, and you can see it in Acts, the second chapter, all the way through, where the church was was begun by God uh, through the, the work that Christ accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Satan does everything he can. Jesus said it. Jesus said it. He said the thief in John 10, 10a has come to what? Steal? kill and destroy. That's what he's come. He'll do that in the individual. He'll come after the individual in a local assembly to steal, to kill and destroy them. Steal it away. All has to do with intimacy. Did you know that if I am, I have an intimate relationship with God, it will never be separated from that place, that local assembly where he's called me. It's, it's just a, it's the principle of oneness. And with oneness, is there any separation or division in oneness? No, there's only addition and multiplication. We can see that clearly in the scriptures. So he does everything he can. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He's going to do everything he can to stop the work in the individual. And if God has called you and I in a specific place in a local assembly, and it's no accident, and if each of us are sheep and we need a shepherd, We need an under-shepherd, one who's under the shepherd. He's going to do everything he can to separate that, to give us plans, to give us things to do that take us away from a local assembly. It's a guarantee, and that starts with a thought life. Remember the prodigal. Long before he ever crossed the threshold, in thought life he had already left, even though he was still there. But he had to go and find out that when he functioned outside that, the father's house, outside of where God had called him to do, where he would be fed, he would end up in, in, in these rags. And of course, God was waiting to be gracious. So he does everything he can, and I am telling you that's what he does here. He does everything he can for this local assembly to mar individuals through thought force, through thoughts, through thought force, a conversation in thought force with him to separate us to somehow separate us. And if he can separate me in my own individuality from Christ, he will separate me from local assembly. And there's no question about that. And so he does everything he can. He does everything he can to thwart and to mar the work of God in the individual and in the local assembly. Because what is the local assembly made up of? Individuals. And God has called individuals to a certain place to function, to learn and grow, and to be a joint that supplies. To be a joint that supplies. We see that in its effectual working in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 right through verse 16. What does he do? This is what he does. Does he just try with us to darken certain truths? Does he try to do that? He can do that, and he does. But what does he do? What does he do? What is the thing that he's trying to do away with in the individual? The glory of Christ that's, that's revealed in each individual. What do I mean by that? <coughs> Excuse me. Again, in Colossians 1, in verse 27, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Hope is guaranteed there. It's not like the English word, it could be or might not be. Hope is guaranteed there in Colossians 1 and verse 27. We have this glory. He wants to do everything he can in our experience, because he can't touch the position, to mar and to darken the glorious light being reflected in us as his vessels. He wants to do everything he can and get us to know ourselves after that through being separated, through, through being separated from, from Christ experientially to, for this. Why? He hates the glory of Christ in us as individuals. So, he, so what does he do? He goes after the thing that's of the utmost concern to, to God through Christ. And who is that? Us as his body. He tries to convince certain body members, you know, you're not so much. You know, you really don't have so much, you know. Look at these other ones and compare yourself. When God, all through the scriptures, is no respecter of persons. Never. He's never a respecter of persons. Ever. He doesn't love someone more than the other in Christ. They're all the same. They're loved exactly the same. They're a unique vessel. They're unique. But what, what, what does he do? He, he, goes, he tries to go after us. And whatever time he can be given, and we're going to get into this this morning, whatever time can be given him is the time that he'll operate in. So here we have, here we have time. Time began, if you want to know where time began in your Bible, it began in Genesis, the first chapter. That's where time began. Because before that, what is there? Eternity. And what is the parenthesis of time? It's eternity. Then when time will be no more, in Revelations 10 and verse 6, there's just what's left. It's eternity. How important is time? Who do we give our time to? This has to do with our thought life too. It has everything to do with it. And so what do we see? We see there that Satan here we see, was given, is, is given so much time. What is that? How does Satan operate? Has Christ taken away and destroyed his power? Does he have any power anymore? Does he? In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, answer, no. Satan has no more power against us as a church. So what does he operate in? How does he operate? He operates through what? He operates through lies. That's how he operates. He operates through lies. That's how he does it. He operates in lies because all power has been dealt with. He operates through these lies. He's, so that lie in time is, is being worked out. Eternal realities of, the, of this, this amazing conflict is being worked out in time. We've been given that opportunity. We've been given that opportunity. What does that mean? Let me, let me read the scriptures about this. And we'll see this is everything that's coming against us and how valuable time is for us. How valuable is the time that we have? And why did God give us the time while we're still on the earth? And what should we do with that time? Does that have to do with our will? Does that have to do with obedience and us continually giving our will and learning and growing? And when we fail, we name it and go on, right in grace. Well, here is Luke 22, and I'm going to read Luke uh, chapter 22. And here it is. I'm just going to read one verse because of time. Luke 22 and verse 53, it says, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour. Notice that? What is an hour? Does that have to do with time? But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Is it really power or is it lies? That's what it is. But it's an hour. Satan, if you want to look at it, if you want to look at terms of everything that's happened on the earth from the time that Adam was created till time in Revelations 10, 6, will be no more, or even to the Re Revelations, the 20th chapter. If you want to see 
what time is. The whole circumference of time in terms of the earth, God considers it what in terms of eternity? An hour. <laughs> Think about it. It's an hour. God's given us an hour to work in these eternal realities, in these eternal truths. The average lifespan in Psalm 90, verse 10, we've said before, is three score and ten, sixty, if by reason, seventy. Some more, some, some more, some less. Seventy. He's given us this time. No wonder it says in 1 Corinthians 7, and verse 29, the time is shortened. For us as the church on this earth, the hour that we have for this lifetime is, is, is the time we had yesterday. Do we have as much today? It's been shortened because the original says time, the time where it says in King James, the time is short. In 1 Corinthians 7, 29, the time is shortened. No wonder it says in Ephesians 5 and verse 16, redeem the time. Allow God to redeem the time in your hour because the days that we live in are evil. We either give our time over to God or over to evil. There's no in-between. It's either God's thoughts through the word or it's evil thoughts. There's no gray areas. It's either one or the other. And furthermore, in Matthew 6 and verse 24, we can't serve two masters. We're either going to be mastered by Christ or be mastered by the enemy. And it has to do with thought force so that we function in those, that thought force as if we don't submit our will to God, whose will do we submit ourselves to? The father of all lies in John 8 and verse 44. So, here we are. He does everything he can because we're the church. You individually, he's going to try everything he can to thwart and mar that reality in your life because he doesn't want you to know this and he'll do everything to lie against it. You mean that much to God as an individual that he would give his son for you to be that very life in you and to share that intimacy with you. So he does everything he can because what means most to God is you and I in Christ. It's the height of his desire. And so we see there, he said, this is their hour. It says here, this is your hour. He's saying, so who was motivating, who was motivating those elders to come against him? It was the enemy, Satan, wasn't it? He was motivating them because that was his hour. This, this time, all you think of time from Genesis again, all the way to really, all the way through to Revelation the 20th chapter. If you compare it to eternity, what is this? An hour. An hour. Now, we look at it in such a beautiful way. And when we see this truth, when we see these truths, you see Satan's hour right? His time period. We see it in, in Luke uh, 22 and verse 53. And it started in Genesis 3, 1 to 6, coming against Eve and Adam. We see, now we see, and we're going to see the Lord's true prayer. Remember, the Lord's prayer is not Matthew, the sixth chapter. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us and deliver us from evil and so forth. And he taught the disciples how to pray then. The Lord's Prayer is John the 17th chapter. And look what it says in John 17 and verse 1. These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, listen to what it says, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him power over all flesh, over all humanity, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we have two hours, don't we? In contrast, we have the hour of him, what we give ourselves to, that hour. In the simplest, even in the most simple, mundane areas of life, we either give it, we give it to Him, 
or we give it to God. Then we have Jesus' hour in John 17. Remember those two hours now. Luke 22, 53, Satan's hour in the power of, of his darkness. And then we have the hour of Christ in John 17 and verse 1. We have that hour. Now, did they know about that? Did they know about what was most dearest to Christ? Did they know about Christ before he was crucified? Did they know that? And the Bible makes it clear they did not. The whole demonic force and Satan didn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 it says this. In verse 6. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. That means complete. Complete. Perfect here means complete in Christ because of what he's done. What Christ has done. Yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world. When it says princes of this world, that's the demonic force under the headship of Satan. The demonic force. The princes of this world that come to what? Not. They're going to come to what? Nothing. They're going to be done away with. And that's going to be soon. Like with the whole world system, it's going to come to an end. Everything the world likes, everything in our flesh that goes towards it, it's going to be over. 1 John 2 verse 17 makes that crystal clear. But, verse 7, but, separation, contrast, and conjunction, contrast and separation, but we speak the wisdom of God. Who is the wisdom of God? It's Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. We speak it in a mystery. They don't know it. They don't know it. We speak it in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world, before the world, unto what? Our glory. That our glory had to do with the glory of Christ first? There's no question about that. Watch. Which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that interesting? They didn't know that. All those angels, they didn't know that, those fallen, that were causing the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees to come against Christ and crucify him, to murder him, to get rid of him. They didn't realize that, that out of that would come all this truth. They had no idea about that. They didn't have a clue about it because if they had known, would they have crucified him? It says it right here, no. They thought in their hour they would get rid of God. What do you think that's like for the unsaved? What do you think it's like for us in the flesh? For the hour or the, the time that God's not involved, what is that? <laughs> what do we, what do we, what does it amount to? What does it amount to for all of us? What does it amount to? Which hour are we living in? That's going to depend upon what, who and what we submit our will to. That's that given time. The given time. Whatever that may be, God has given Satan time to let that lie have its full effect. Because what's it going to come to? Nothing. Do you ever see, see 1 Corinthians 13? Without love, what is it? We are what? No thing. Did, you, did we see that? Did we hear that? There's no material thing. No thing will give us, will meet the joy and the love that God has for us outside of Christ himself. Nothing. No job. No amount of money. No amount of material things. Anything. Our security, our stability as our security. Our security in Isaiah 33 and verse 6 is Christ himself who's wisdom, who's truth, who's that foundation. And let me tell you, the enemy hates you as an individual in Christ. He wouldn't even hate you and I if Christ wasn't in us as a vessel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure that Christ is. And these fragile clay jars, that the excellency of the power, notice the power may be of God and not of us. Do we have power outside of submitting ourselves to Christ? We don't. We have no power. And he constantly has to remind us but see, this given time, who do we give our time to? To that hour? Or to the hour? And we're learning, aren't we, to grow in this, that hour. So as we see here, there's a battlefield. What is the battlefield? What is the arena where the enemy comes after? What is the battlefield and what is that area? Well, the enemy comes against the individual. 
And let me tell you, if you and I don't have that teaching, then we have no shield in Ephesians 6.16, taking the shield of the faith. All those teachings and the fiery missiles come in, those thought force, that's a lie. And then we begin to function in it, thinking we have to do something now. I have to do something to make something better. I have to do something to make myself pleasing to someone and pleasing to God when I'm already in Christ, who Christ himself in the individual has pleased God beyond anything, above and beyond everything. Taking up that shield of faith. But you know, he, whatever means there is, he's going to try every single area. If I'm blind, if I'm hardened in an area, if I don't know it, I'm ignorant of it, or if I'm rebellious and stubborn in 1 Samuel 15, 23, rebellion is as witchcraft. Christian wouldn't think of doing witchcraft, would they? After being born again, would they sit down and do witchcraft, make sacrifice an animal and sing around it? Well, rebellion is as witchcraft. Oh, God. And stubbornness, right? None of us in Christ, I, I hope and I believe, wouldn't think of bowing down to some idol, would we? What's behind an idol? It's a demonic force. We wouldn't do that, would we? And stubbornness is as idolatry. We have this hour. And God is using that time to shape us for eternity. And he's done that. And he's given us the truth. And he's given that his son and given us the power of the Holy Spirit and he's given us a local assembly where this hour can be filled with all the glory of who Christ is and us as individuals and then we come together and we have fellowship because we exchange Christ and nothing else but him that's fellowship that's fellowship and so he's going to do everything he can to blind to hinder to thwart and to mar God's own dear children, because that's who we are, from understanding and doing the will of their God and Father. When God, and he is right now still doing this, that's why I teach it. Listen, God has no other way of doing things today. He does it according to order, and I am telling you folks, I cannot even say it enough. I don't care how old we are or how young we are. I don't care how new we are to the local assembly here or how long we've been here. We need to be reminded. God does things and he does it in a local assembly, period. That's the way he does it. That is the way that he does it. God is gathering out his church out of the world system and putting them in local assemblies to be taught. This is the enemy's season of activity. Listen to me. The enemy's season of active, unceasing effort to oppose, confound, confuse, and obscure all the truths that are connected with it about who we are in Christ. I cannot tell you enough. You may be in your 80s. You may be in your 20s or in between. It's not changed from God. You, you and I belong to a specific local assembly. None of that has changed. It has not changed yet. We're still on the earth, the church. Many are in, the, in heaven, but we are still on this earth as a church in local assemblies. And it's local because we can't all gather in one place. God has called us to a specific place. Let me tell you, that's the truth. He doesn't do it any other way. And the enemy will use everything. And I see how he does it. I see how he does it. Gets our minds occupied with everything else. Then the truth about learning about who we are in Christ in a local assembly. And he'll make things through thought forces, through lies, that are okay for us to do. I'm going to close with this. The enemy season, it says, is what? Of, Right? Active, unceasing effort, evil effort. It's active. God's love is what? I'm going to explain this this morning as God's explained it to me over through the years and will continue to do. The activity of God's nature is love. For now, 
for an unden for now in a season in this season the activity of the enemy is evil and hatred against us I'll say it again the activity of God's nature is love who we are in Christ the purity of God's nature is light that's the understanding of the word that's what we have in a local assembly that's what we have and he has the enemy has unceasing effort to oppose local assembly coming to hear the word together as much as we can and doing it much more as we see the day approaching the day of Christ in Hebrews 10 verse 25 and we're to exhort lovingly edify one another with the truth of this we don't have our private plans that has that's not fellowship it's doing away with personal desires plans and hopes and and putting all that aside for the benefit of the whole that's local assembly that's called fellowship there's no other way there's no other way to obscure all those truths well then <coughs> how is it then that satan succeeds in the life of an individual this way what causes them what causes them to lead an individual away from and keep them away from as much as he can from local assembly. What is that? The lack of a submitted will. The lack of a submitted will. The lack of obedience. The lack of knowing things, but not submitting to them. And if it's, if it's delayed obedience, tell me, what is it? It's disobedience. Delayed obedience is, in my life and in yours, it's just disobedience. And here we have all this evidence about who we are in Christ and how many really, how many Christians really know the foundational truths and evidence that is ours. How many truly know that? Or have ever been taught that? I mean, look at we're born again. Why not just take us to heaven? I want, I want us to think about that this this morning, because I'm thinking about it with you. Here we are. Well, why not go to heaven as soon as we're born? Why not go to heaven? I don't know. As soon as the baby's born, that's it. That's as far as you want to go in the relationship with it? Or do you want that baby to grow so you can experience an intimate relationship with it as it grows? Why not? Why are we on this earth? Why are we on this earth? And if we are on this earth as believers in Christ during this dispensation of grace, and it's called the church age, is that local assembly? Is God is the local assembly involved in the plans that you think you have with other people? Is the local assembly involved in it and were you sent out? It's that simple. That's not me. This is the word that teaches that. That's our security. And the enemy is going to come against it full force and tell you and, and tell you why it's okay and give you every reason why it's okay. And then the areas that we function for so long in the flesh, then when the truth comes, the enemy is going to convince us that that truth is against us when we function in the flesh. And are we who we are in the flesh? Or are we who we are in Christ? I am telling you, I am telling you, that's the way that it works. There are no separate private plans in the local assembly. There just is not. There is not. God does not give you and I a call outside of a local assembly. He doesn't. I don't know where we get that, that thinking that we have the separate plans and, and we just don't because our security and our safety is the local assembly. And is that God's order? Is God's order the local assembly? Has that changed? Has that changed now? Is the church still on the earth? Is it not raptured? Okay, is the order changed then? Is that God's way? Do you see how the enemy comes again? He is so subtle with so many so many different believers. He is very subtle in the thousand and one excuses. And remember, the enemy always wants, for me personally, he wants me to excuse it, excuse sin, just blow it off. 
Or if I see it, make an excuse for it. Is there any excuse for it? Has God given us? Has He not taken care of all our disobedience? Has He not taken care of everything? So what is the excuse? The excuse is the cloak. The cloak is brought out in John the 15th chapter and 22nd verse. A cloak is the excuse to live in, in, in sin. You know, when the word comes, and maybe I didn't know it. Maybe I didn't know how I was, how I was, how I was to function in local assembly, in the headship of Christ in that local assembly. Maybe I didn't know it. But boy, once I know it and the light comes on, then what? Then what is it? Come on. The principle of the body. Read 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. Each member in a local assembly is a part. Does the, does the hand function apart from the arm, the arm apart, apart from the body, the leg, all the different parts? What happens when they function apart? How do they function? Tell me. That's local assembly. We can't all meet in one place. So we function in local assemblies. And in that local assembly is there specific and proper order. There is. And God loves us. That's our place of protection. It is our place of protection. It's where we grow. Where we grow. It's, not, it's where we won't miss volumes of truth. Volumes of it. Volumes of specific truth that, are, that is ours in Christ to protect us. You know why? Because the enemy is after what means the most to God in Christ. And who do you suppose that is? That's you. That's me. And the enemy does everything he can because he hates us experiencing God's love for us individually. And that glory that is manifested to us, Christ himself, who is glory and, is, and will be glorified, then to go into a vessel and light that vessel up in all its glory in the unique way that only that individual is, then you put them together in a local assembly. What kind of light does that give off? You can divide that light, divide the individuals, have them going here and going there and doing this and doing that. And what kind of light does that give off? See how much he loves us, loves us deeply. So Father, we thank you for the depth of your love that you have for us this morning and how the enemy does everything he can to come again, to distract us, to get us distracted in a multitude of ways. But thank you, Lord, that you've given us a particular place so that we can function in a proper image about who we truly are in Christ. And then first and foremost, Father, first and foremost, everything about us has to do with that particular local assembly, that body where you've called us. Not that others aren't body members, but that's where you've called us to learn, to feed, to grow. And then from that body, in specific, perfect order, to go out from that to bring others in, in a local assembly, Father. We just thank you for these precious, specific truths, Lord, as we're all growing and we're learning to grow in grace and knowledge, no matter how old we are, in our 20s, in our 70s or 80s, or in between. You're constantly reminding us of these truths and bringing us back to this reality. So thank you and praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.